Amen and amen. Thank you, Melissa, for reading God's word for us this morning. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who I've not had the chance to meet this morning or even even before, my name is Eric Solomon, and, and I get the privilege of pastoring this particular congregation here at TVC. Like Melissa said, at TVC, we are part of this larger church body known as Wheaton Bible Church alongside our West Chicago and Iglesia de Pueblo congregations. And, I, and I'm just glad, whether you're new or you're coming back, you call this place home, that you chose to worship with us this morning. King David, at the beginning of Psalm 122, uh, opens this, this psalm with these words. He says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This morning, it is a joy to be in the house of the Lord together. To be praying, to be worshiping by praying, to be worshiping by singing, to be worshiping now by sitting under God's word together. So before we dive into the scriptures, let's take a moment to pray one more time. Lord, like I pray every Sunday morning. And I trust you to answer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment be a a beautiful and pleasing act of worship before you. We trust you to change us by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit working through your word as we gather here, positioning ourselves under your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, today... We continue the, the third section of our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and if you've been here for this third section, we've entitled this section the, the King's Mission, like you see behind me on the screen. Because for, for three chapters, from chapters 8 to chapter 10, we are watching Jesus in motion. Jesus on mission. King Jesus advancing his kingdom in what I might call unexpected ways. And so today we are going to continue studying that unexpected advance in our passage with more stories of healing, more stories of of faith, more stories of people that are reaching out for and reacting to Jesus. But there's something specific about this particular group of stories that Matthew wants us to see, that Matthew is pointing us to see in this text. As I was thinking about it this past week, uh, the the image that came to my mind is is, uh, the holographic cards. Do you you guys know what I'm talking about? In first grade, the the, the really special cards you hand out for Valentine's? Or if you're a nerd like me, the special edition Pokemon cards? Like the ones that change like color, but then also it's a different kind of image depending on how you hold it? This, this, This passage has kind of a holographic feel to it. And the reason being is, is from one perspective, and depending on the angle of light, we see one image, and, and from another perspective, we see another. You see, from one perspective, we, we, we look at this passage, and we see a Savior on a very specific mission to people that are in desperate need. But then from another perspective, we, we turn it another way, and we actually see those people reaching out for that Savior out of desperation and desperate faith. And yet by the end of it, We're going to run into a group of people that aren't looking at it from a particular angle. They've got the whole picture upside down. And instead of seeing a compassionate Savior or even the desperate people that surround him, all they can see is a dangerous devil inside. Perspective. It makes all the difference in the world. So this morning, I want us to step into the story and allow the story, the, the scriptures, to determine our perspective. In fact... 
What I want us to do is to take on the perspective of various people in this text to see Jesus through their eyes, to see the king on mission. To borrow a phrase from a book title, I want us to see Jesus through the eyes of others and let the scriptures shape our perspective on that Jesus, that we might see him for who he really is. So here's how we're going to walk through this passage. In this passage, we're going to be looking through the eyes of the ruler who kneels, the woman who reaches, the girl who rises, the men who chase, and the religious who refuse to see. Five perspectives. Five points. I know I'm going to shorten them. It's okay. I feel the panic in the room rising. <laughs> but these five perspectives that I want us to key in on, these, these people who are experiencing this king on mission, and see, really see the Jesus who came to save us from our sin. And what we're going to find in this grouping of Jesus' miracles is that these stories have been very intentionally grouped to lay out Jesus' credentials as the one true Savior. In fact, in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to summarize his ministry, this ministry we've been reading about, with the words of Isaiah 35 and 61 actually saying to some people, "The, the blind receive sight, check. The lame walk, check. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, check. The deaf hear, check. The dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is what we've been studying these last few weeks and what I think we're about to encounter here. We know Jesus has done many more healings than what we have here. Matthew tells us that much. But these stories have been intentionally chosen to make the case that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That the Savior who's been promised for hundreds of years is finally here. And in this text, that Savior will demonstrate both his power but also his compassion to the kind of people that society normally overlooks. The kind of people who King Jesus never overlooks. And as we see these people through the eyes of King Jesus, we see a desperate and bold picture of faith. And so here's this whole sermon summarized in one sentence. What we're going to see is a picture that defines faith as seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. Not Not just seeing Jesus, But responding to Jesus in the way we live, what we actually do. You see, faith in these stories is about more than what we think. It's about what we do with what we think. What we do when what we feel overwhelms all the different things and questions we might have and desperation gives way to Jesus, whatever the cost. They tell me I have to shave my beard so I don't do what's happening right now. Let's see if I can figure this out. All right. I also can just get really loud while I take off this mic, and then you guys are going to have, like, real Cuban espresso. But I'm not going to subject you to that quite yet. All right, let's start with this. Let's start by looking through the eyes of the first desperate person in our text, this ruler who kneels. And I want you to remember the context of the story we're about to step into. I want you to remember what's happening. Jesus is still at a party with sinners He's, he's actually in the middle of answering questions about fasting, revealing this newness of the kingdom, the kingdom mission that he is on, and there are Pharisees that are grumbling around him. It is in that context, in fact, while he's still talking about new wine, that Jesus is interrupted by a desperate father. Look at verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has has just died, but, but if you just come and put your hand on her, and, and she will live. 
Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. You see, a, a man walks up to Jesus in the middle of his conversation and it is clear that he is not okay. It is also clear that he's not just anybody. The NIV calls him a synagogue leader. The ESV calls him a, a ruler. Mark and Luke actually give us his name when they retell this story. Jairus. Jairus, this ruler who exercises influence not just in the synagogue but in society. A, a respected Jewish man who approaches Jesus in desperation because he's kneeling before Jesus. Can you imagine what the Pharisees must be thinking in this moment? Jairus, what are you doing? Like, like you're one of us, bro, and you're kneeling in front of this, this, this man who hangs out with sinners, who's risking defiling. What are you doing, bro? Get up. But Jesus thought about their, or Jairus thought about their reaction. He did not care. He was desperate because in this moment, he's not coming as a ruler. He is coming as a father, a father who has felt like the bottom has just dropped out, a parent who feels the crushing weight of grief and pain and not hearing that sound again, a daddy who's lost his little girl, and, and, and maybe people think he's in some kind of denial about what's happened. After all, she's dead. What, what more could be done? In fact, in just a few verses, we're going to meet a crowd who thinks just like that. But this father is far from denial. He's not denying anything. In fact, he is taking a leap of faith, a desperate leap that brings him to his knees before this Jesus he keeps hearing about. And right now, it's not about whether, whatever theological questions might be coming to mind. It's about recognizing something different in Jesus, someone he was desperate for. Like the Magi at the beginning of Jesus' life and, and like the leper that approaches Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this man kneels before Jesus and declares faith in Jesus' power to restore life. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't even say a word. He responds to this man's faith by immediately getting up and following this man home with his disciples in tow. This, this man sees Jesus out of his desperation as the only one who can make right what has gone so horribly wrong in his life. He, he sees Jesus past his own title, past his own status in society as a ruler, past whatever might make him question Jesus, and he kneels before him in faith, in desperate faith. And this morning, familia, I need you to see that. I need you to hear that. Jesus always responds to faith. No matter how small, no matter how desperate. In fact, sometimes it is actually desperation that drives us to Jesus in the first place. We see how, how desperate we are, how hopeless we are apart from him. Sometimes Jesus is our last resort. But what a relief and what a comfort and what a joy when we finally come to the end of ourselves and come to the beginning of Jesus. The beginning of this gospel to finally experience the good news of a king who comes to us in our desperation and responds to our need, not just our physical, but our spiritual desperate need. You see, this was only the beginning for this ruler, this father, this desperate man that's desperate for Jesus. Faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. The moment this man knelt before Jesus is the moment that faith went from question to action, from idea to act, and Jesus responded immediately because faith is what he's looking for. Faith is what he responds to. Faith is what pleases him. And then in this next scene, 
Faith is what stops him in his tracks. You see, as Jesus is following this father, this Jairus, back to his daughter, Jesus actually encounters one of his own daughters on the road, and her desperate faith is met by his compassionate face in what can only be described as an encounter of grace. Look at verse 20. I want us to see Jesus through the eyes of the woman who reaches. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus is following Jairus back to his house. The disciples are surrounding Jesus, and you can imagine the crowd that's trailing behind, trying to catch a glimpse of what's about to happen. In the midst of shoulders that are bumping and and elbows that are jabbing and feet that are rushing, there's a hand that, that, that finds a gap and grasps the tassels that are flowing behind her only hope. This hand is not just any hand, but the hand of a woman who, according to the law of God, was unclean because of her condition. A condition the text says she has suffered for over a decade. A condition that more than physically disables her, but has actually restricted her ability to worship. Because you see, according to the law in Leviticus 15, she was what what the law says, unclean. She could only be made clean when the the bleeding stopped and sacrifices would be made. But but the bleeding never stopped and she had already sacrificed everything to fix herself. She was unclean and she was desperate to be clean again. Now I keep using this language of clean and unclean. So let me clarify what I'm talking about when I use this language. You see, unclean in the scriptures does not necessarily always mean sinful. Sometimes it does, but not always. In fact... In the part of the Bible we all have trouble with in our reading plans, law after law after law in Leviticus, we actually see that being unclean is something that everyone experiences at different times, men and women, and God actually made provision to take care of it. What unclean meant, whether it was sinful or not, is that you couldn't enter the temple. You you couldn't go to worship. This this woman for 12 years has not just suffered physically. For for 12 years, this woman has been desperate for God, and she has been unable to encounter him in his temple. She had suffered spiritually. She had been restricted from this temple. She had suffered relationally, restricted from normal society. You see, being unclean meant that everyone was supposed to avoid you. Because if they touched you, or even, even sat where you had sat just a moment before, it would make them unclean. She was likely unmarried, unable to have kids, friendless, hopeless. That is until she heard about Jesus. Until her desperation risked the the public humiliation and and condemnation of, of shoving her way through a crowd and one by one by one making everyone else unclean until that day on the road when she, out of her desperation, finds the living, breathing, walking, talking temple of God. And she finally encounters God in the flesh. And she's finally able to, to touch him. You see, whether she fully understands this or not, this is the high priest who one day would sacrifice himself for her. To make her completely and entirely and permanently clean, not just physically but spiritually. She had pushed through the crowd, making everyone she touched with her own uncleanness unclean themselves until she touched the edge of his cloak. Her faith is desperate. Listen to what she says. If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. She didn't even want to talk to him. 
She will do anything to reach him. She, she doesn't want to bother him. She just wants to touch him. Maybe that will work. Faith is desperate in this moment, and, and even as we look at it, it, it is a, a little bit broken because Jesus is no magician, right? His, his cloak doesn't have some kind of magic powers, but she has nowhere left to go, no one left to turn to. Her, her, her faith may not be perfect, but as, as one pastor writes, it is small enough to throw mountains into the sea and bold enough to reach out and touch God in the flesh. The God who sees her. You see, Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Listen, in the moment of contact, what happened? Is she healed? No, not yet. First, she is seen. For once, she is not avoided. She is not discarded. She is regarded as important enough to stop and to see. Jesus turns around and he sees her. Whatever magical thoughts she may have had, he eliminates them by speaking to her face to face, leaving her without any doubt that it is not his clothes that restore her. It is her God that makes her whole again. And so before he confirms the miracle, he actually calms her heart. He, he addresses the fear that courses through her body, making the heart that has pumped blood at all the wrong times start to beat out of her chest. And he says, take heart. Be encouraged. It's okay. It, it's, it's more than okay. Daughter. Familiar, this is the only woman in all four of the Gospels that Jesus directly calls daughter. The only woman, an unnamed woman, who reaches and risks making Jesus unclean is named by Jesus Daughter. Rebecca McLaughlin writes about this in her new book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And she, talking about this section on daughter, she just ends with this one phrase. She says, of course she has the right to touch him. She's his daughter. In that moment, Jesus makes it clear that he's not only willing to eat with sinners, he's willing to be touched by them, to, to risk in the eyes of others being made unclean. McLaughlin actually explains this moment. She unpacks how radical this encounter is. She writes this. I'll put the, put the quote up on the screen. The, the first Jewish readers of the gospel would have seen the woman's ceremonial uncleanness, remember, not sinful uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness, as central to the story. For most of us, that aspect may seem irrelevant, but the way Jesus receives this bleeding woman shows he doesn't shy away from the physicality of femaleness. Even the normal experience of menstruation can be grueling. For many women, periods come with physical discomfort, emotional distress. For some, the pain is debilitating. But Jesus does not recoil. Instead, he welcomes this woman who has bled for 12 years straight as a daughter filled with faith. Listen to me, familiar. Do you see Jesus in this moment with this woman? Jesus does not shy away from the uncomfortable, what for some people might be the unspeakable. He does not avoid pain because it disturbs him or it makes him uneasy. Jesus stops, he turns, and he welcomes her touch when no one else would. When her very body was distorted into a social and spiritual barrier, Jesus crosses that barrier and rehumanizes her daughter. She does not make him unclean. Yes, in the eyes of everyone around, they, they may think he is now unclean, but Jesus is not unclean. He is the one who makes her clean. And someday, at least in 
the timeline of this woman. For us, the past, Jesus takes on all of our uncleanness, makes us completely clean for always. He is unashamed in this moment to identify with her, to identify with us. To restore her not only to society, but into his family. To call us his sons and his daughters. Because someday, on that cross, he will take all of our sin, all of our uncleanness, anything that separates us from him, on himself. All the punishment that comes with that. And he will bury it in the grave and come back to life three days later. Daughter, he calls her. Your faith has healed you. Not your touch, not my cloak, but your faith in me. And in that moment, not before, not when he turned and saw her, but when he connected her faith to him and her, his life-giving mission to her, in that moment, she is healed. You see, her faith drew her to Jesus. And then her faith was realized as Jesus drew near to her and drew her to himself. Faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. This woman who reaches for Jesus reaches in faith, but not because she has faith in how much faith she has. It's because she has faith in who Jesus is. Faith is what drew her to Jesus and draws Jesus to her. And I want you to step back from this scene and look at what's happening. There is a crowd around them. A crowd that is touching and, and, and following and bumping into Jesus as he makes his way up the road. And no one but this woman, this, this daughter actually makes contact with Jesus. Because as one theologian explains, faith is what brings us into contact with Jesus. Jesus is not a magician. He's not some miracle worker. It is entirely possible to bump into Jesus in the crowd and remain unchanged. Faith is what makes all of the difference. Not us in our effort believing enough, but us in our humility believing he is who he says he is. Believing what he's telling us even if we don't fully understand everything that's happening. Faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. And then as his eyes turn away from his daughter and towards the daughter of Jairus, he's about to show them just how true he is. I want us to look at the third perspective, verse 23, as we see Jesus through the eyes of the girl who rises. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, this ruler's house, Jairus' house, he, he sees the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, and he says, go away. Settle down, Jesus. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. The door opens, and the sound of pain and tears and wailing hits Jesus full in the face. Jairus' wife, this little girl's mother, their extended family, they're probably surrounding this bed in, in unbelief and deep in the throes of unbelievable grief. But if you pan out, it is also very likely that there is a crowd that surrounds them that wails along with them. A crowd not just of neighbors, but of what some might call professional mourners which may sound a bit weird to us today, but at this time in history, and actually still in some cultures today, is a common cultural practice. This music of mourning, this wailing of women, all of the experiences and sounds of grief, they've been turned up to, to 11 by a crowd of professional mourners. And, and why am I bringing any of this up? Because I think it helps us better understand Jesus' very direct reply to their noise. And then their weird mocking response to his words. You see, Jesus is not being harsh or demeaning or even minimizing grief. After all, when his friend Lazarus dies, he weeps. Jesus is not a stranger to grief. 
But here at the front door of Jairus' house, he tells the noisemakers to go away because he's about to demonstrate his power as king, even over death. Because when death comes face to face with Jesus, it no longer has the final word. This crowd, though, thinks that this Jesus dude has lost his mind. Right? That he's too late. He should have picked up the pace. He shouldn't have been interrupted. He's, he's not seeing reality. This is too far. You know, in fact, how dare he say that this girl is still asleep? He's doing too much. His, his confidence is misplaced. He, he thinks he's more powerful than he is. But Jesus is not in denial in this moment because he's about to turn everything upside down and redefine what they thought about death for so long. After the, grow, the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. Jesus walks up, hears the noise, says, everyone outside now. The other accounts of this story in Mark and Luke, they actually tell us that Jesus took the parents and his disciples and brought them into the girl's bedroom. But, but Matthew doesn't even give that detail. He just says Jesus went in and, and, and surrounding the bed, Jesus does something unexpected but entirely purposeful. He takes her hand. Now, we've experienced Jesus before. If you read any of the Gospels, you know that Jesus can just use words and things happen. In this moment, Jesus makes contact with her, contact with her dead body. The law is pretty clear. Jesus has just defiled himself. Touching a dead body makes you unclean. But something else is happening here. You see, Jesus is not afraid to touch sinners to touch the unclean, not with the daughter he made contact with on the road and not with this little girl he makes contact with in this home. On the outside, it, look, it appears it looks like Jesus has, has somehow made himself unclean, but the exact opposite has happened. Jesus is not the one becoming unclean. It is those he touches that become clean because it is not their uncleanness that is contagious, but his cleanness, the restoration of this king that leaps from him and into us. Jesus immediately heals this little girl like he immediately healed the woman. It's a miracle. Everyone hears about it. I mean, how could you not? Someone just came back from the dead. But this moment early in Jesus' ministry is not just another amazing miracle story. You see, I think it's a sign that's pointing forward to something that will happen. Because someday, on that cross, Jesus will not only conquer death on an individual level, but on a cosmic level forever and finally. Someday, Jesus would die in our place and rise from their grave, dealing death a death blow. In his death, the curse of sin, the curse that this family was feeling as their beloved little one lay lifeless on this bed, this curse that we've all felt the sting of to some degree would be taken by him, would be buried in the grave. The countdown had begun. Death was over. This is the gospel on display in a small way, but someday in a cosmic way, because the good news of Jesus is that he died in our place took on our punishment for our sin, but he also took on the curse of death that was all over all of creation. And so this resurrection, his, his resurrection on a bigger scale than this particular resurrection of this little girl fills us with hope because we know someday he will return because Jesus was died, buried, and rose from the grave. Those of us who believe, who have faith, who are like the scriptures say, united to him, even if we die, will someday rise again to new life because death no longer gets to have the final word. And this is Jesus starting that conversation. Now, the girl who rises does not have the faith to reach out to Jesus. 
like the previous two people perspectives we had. It's her father's faith that invites Jesus into the house. But she, she has no life in her to reach out to Jesus when he walks in the room. But like her resurrection is a picture of our resurrection, so her death is a picture of our death, of our reality that we are dead in sin. Because faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is, living like that's really true. It is desperate and it reaches for Jesus, yes, but the reality is that the only reason we reach for Jesus in the first place is because Jesus has reached for us first. Faith is seeing Jesus because he opens our eyes like he opened the eyes of this little girl. The ruler who kneels, the woman who reaches, both of them are only able to do that because the Spirit of God was at work. Because Jesus came in the first place and was saying all of these radical things about the kingdom of God. And they go, I got to I gotta go talk to that guy. I got to go just touch that guy. Something will change if I just get near to that guy. Because he's no normal person. Opening their eyes that they might see. Kind of like our next perspective. This perspective of the men who chase. Look at verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, Jesus walks out the door, and the, the crowd does not get any smaller with everything that's just happened. But the noise of grief is replaced, replaced by this noise of desperation as, as two blind men, they scream to be heard, have, have mercy on us, son of David. In their mouth is a name that Jesus has not heard yet in this gospel, a name we've actually only read twice and both times appeared in the very first chapter of Matthew. You see, Matthew opens his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with these words. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And now someone finally gets it. Someone says it, screams it like they believe it. You see, this Jesus is not just anybody. He's the son of David, the king who's been promised, the savior who deserves all of our faith, even and especially desperate faith. And the faith of these blind men is certainly desperate. They're pleading for mercy. Their lives have been distorted by their condition in so many ways. But the irony is that all the people that have been watching Jesus, it is two blind men who really see him. And yet, Jesus doesn't even respond to them. Did you catch that when we were reading the text earlier? Jesus walks right by these two men. For the first time in Matthew, Jesus is asked a direct question. He's asked for something, and he ignores the request. Why? Is this some kind of Jesus test? Is, is he worried about the crowd getting the wrong idea about who he is with this messianic title hanging in the air, thinking that he's some kind of political warrior come to take on the Romans? Whatever Jesus might be thinking in this moment, he doesn't stop. He keeps walking until he walks indoors. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men, they came to him, verse 28, and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. You see, Jesus gets inside and they follow him. They, they, they chase him inside. They're not about to let Jesus get away. They are, they are bent on getting into the presence of Jesus. But there are some conversations that are better had indoors, and so... As soon as they cross the threshold, Jesus turns around and he asks them a question. They've pleaded for mercy, but Jesus is pausing to check their hearts. Do they actually see him? Do they, do they believe? Do you believe, not that you'll get your miracle, but that I am the one with the ability to make you whole again? Without hesitation, they affirm their faith in him. He's not just teacher. 
He's not just healer walking around town. He is Lord. They call him Lord, and they are desperate for him. They cry out for mercy and desperate humility. And then Jesus reaches out and touches them. With hands that raised a girl from the grave, extended from a body that healed a woman, the hands of a king who has compassion, he touches their blindness and he opens their eyes. According to your faith. Not in proportion to your faith, as if the more faith they had, the better their sight would be. Like if you just believe enough, you'll see in 2020, if not so much, we're going to drop down a little bit. But because you believe, I will heal. Like he turned to see the woman so that she was clear that it was not his tassels that healed her. Jesus opens the eyes of these men, looks them in the eye, and makes it clear that he only heals them because of faith. He is not some kind of magician. He is a king on mission. A mission he does not want misunderstood. And so Jesus warns them sternly. See that no one knows about this. Which, like Jesus, these guys have been blind for a long time. And you just opened their eyes. And this is what you're asking? They went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Jesus is not about gaining followers in this moment, loyal to him based on his power or what they might perceive to be some kind of magic tricks. It is not time yet. People will not understand what's happening. And so they don't, they don't understand that there's a cross in his future no matter how many times he says it. Even the disciples who are with him question him constantly and actually rebuke him when he talks about his death. And so he commands these men to be quiet. And yet, ironically, as soon as they are healed, they disobey. Listen, I get it. How could they keep this quiet? Because their Lord commanded them. The one they just called Lord. Because they need to trust him even if they don't understand. You see, faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. These men, they see him, they believe, and he heals, but then they disobey. It is possible, familia, to believe Jesus and still disobey him. Maybe because we don't understand what he's doing. But the king is on mission, and he is the one who gets to define that mission, not us. We may not know what he's doing, how he's going to accomplish it. We believe and we follow by faith, trusting the hands that opened our eyes and made our hearts beat again, even if they are pointing in a direction we don't understand. The ruler who kneels, the woman who reaches, the girl who rises, these men who chase, they all encounter Jesus. This ruler who disregards his status to get to Jesus. A, a woman who risks further condemnation to get to Jesus. A girl who can't even respond to Jesus. Two blind men that chase him when he walks by. But here's the thing I found so interesting about the story. We, we have no idea what happens next to these people. The story of the ruler, the woman, this little girl, and even these blind men, it stops after their miracle. The question that I had is what are they going to do with the restoration that the king has brought into their life? Well, what happens next? What will you do with the restoration that the king has brought in your life? Their story is untold and your story is still going. But this story is still in process in this passage. You see, the mission of the king continues to move forward. But there is an option you can take that is a wrong turn. This story is about to take a dark turn. Look at verse 32. 
While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, right? The, the blind man walk out and a new man is brought in. But notice the details of the text. He is not the one approaching Jesus. He is not reaching out for Jesus. He is being brought to Jesus. He is demon-possessed. It's his deeper condition, but it, it's manifesting in the, in the fact that he can't speak. He's, he's mute. And then Jesus drives the demon out, opens the mouth of this mute man. But, but the story, this story feels different than the other stories we've just been in. There's, there's no mention of faith in this moment. Well, you're like, okay, there wasn't with the girl. It's like, but there's not even a dialogue. Jesus doesn't talk to this guy. He talks to the girl. Why? Why? Why, why is Matthew spending time in the details of other stories but not here? And I, I think it's because Matthew wants us to focus not so much on this miracle but on the reaction to this miracle. Look at what happens next. The crowd was amazed, and they, they opened their mouth. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Right? They, they recognize something new is happening. They may not know what to make of Jesus quite yet, but at least they can call it for what it is. It's, it is amazing. It is new. It is out of the ordinary. But then there's another reaction, a perspective that actually turns the picture upside down and doesn't even try to see truth. You see, it's not just that this next group has a bad angle on what's happening. It's that their sin-distorted hearts ruin their vision. They see Jesus upside down. The Pharisees, they said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In chapter 8, we met a centurion, a, a Gentile, a non-Jew who, who saw Jesus truly. In chapter 9, we get Matthew, a tax collector, who sees Jesus truly. They, they see him truly, maybe not completely, but they see him as he, who, who he really, even blind men see Jesus truly. But those who should see him? who are expected to get it, who should be shoe-ins for the kingdom, are completely blind to their Savior standing in front of them. They know the Scriptures, right? Right before their very eyes, blind men see and a mute man speaks. Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, he is the one who gives sight to the blind. And yet these Pharisees, they shut their eyes, preferring the darkness of their own hearts to their God and King. They don't deny what he's doing. No, they are way past that. I mean, how could they? Blind men see and lame men walk. They can't just say, like, your eyes are deceiving you in this moment. They can't deny what he's doing, but they can deny who he is. They fumble for an explanation, and they land not just on any explanation, but on one that makes Jesus the enemy. After all, they might be reasoning, supernatural power only comes from one of two places, and it's very clear that the power of Jesus does not come from God. It must come from the devil. These miracles, they're not trying to deceive, they're, or they're, they're, not, they're trying to deceive, they're not trying to liberate, they're, they're trying to delude, they're not trying to resuscitate, they're not bringing joy and kingdom, they're, they're trying to, to, to bring you into the enemy's kingdom. And then they follow in the footsteps of their ancestors, rebuked in Isaiah chapter 42, where God says, hear you deaf, look you blind and see. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. You're not paying attention. You're not listening. The ruler kneeled. The woman reached. The girl rose. The blind man saw. Even the mute man spoke. But these religious people, those who think that they are righteous, they refuse to see, to see Jesus. They do not have faith. Because faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and living like that's really true. Listen to me. After going through this text, do you, 
Do you see, not just in this text, but in all the texts we've been, do you see who Jesus is welcoming, who he's healing? Men and women, rich and poor, old and young, some are alone, some are in pairs, some are confident but desperate, some can't see past their desperation, they're just trying to touch him. He's interrupted, he's, he's chased, he's, he's laughed at, some are brought to him, some try to sneak up on him. From every direction and in every way, Jesus welcomes those who others would say are not worthy who others would label as not worth it. Like one scholar writes, Jesus touched the untouchables. Do we see the Jesus who eats and sits with sinners and the outcasts of society? Do we believe that we are also part of that group no matter how nice our lives look? The Jesus who received lepers and centurions, women and tax collectors, the blind, the mute, those whose bodies won't work and those whose bodies have completely quit. The king is on mission to save sinners and he will stop at nothing to save sinners, to restore what sin took, to repair what sin broke to the point where he gets up on a cross and dies a death that was not his to die. It was ours. This is the gospel. Do we see the king on mission? Do we see the king who became unclean that we might be made clean? Do we believe that he really and truly can forgive us, that, that nothing is outside, that his death actually accomplished complete forgiveness for every sin you could ever do, that you ever did, ever could think of? He thought of all the sins that you would ever even just imagine, and he took care of it on the cross for you and for me because Jesus is on mission to save sinners. The problem is when you don't think you are a sinner. Are we too busy looking past Jesus or turning him upside down, not just because we don't like what we see when we look at him, but we don't believe what he says when he looks at us? That we are made in his image, that we are made to be with him, but that our sin has separated us from him so far that we've not just forgotten who we are, we've forgotten who he is. That he actually and truly loves us so much that he came for us to free us from the sin that is not only outside of us, hurting us in all sorts of ways, but is beating in our own hearts. That our hearts are as diseased as this woman who was bleeding, as dead as this girl who wasn't breathing, as blind as these men that are chasing Jesus. Do we see ourselves like he sees us? Sinners that are dead in our sin, worse than we could have ever imagined, but more love than we could ever understand that he loves us and came for us and died for us and was buried for us and came back to life for us, that he might call us his children, daughter, son. The work of the enemy is to deceive, to take what Jesus does and who he is and distort him into someone to be resisted. But the work of the king, the mission of Jesus is to reveal, to show us the truth about who we are and about who he is and to draw us back to him, to bring life to a world that's cursed by death. How does Jesus do that? By taking that curse on himself and dying for us so that we might live for him. Do we believe? Faith is seeing Jesus for who he truly is and then living like that's really true. Do we have faith in him? Will you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing us who you are and who we are. Thank you for loving us, for keeping us, for caring for us. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are willing to go where everyone else is not. That you are willing to enter the darkness, the grief of our pain and our suffering, to step into where sin seems to reign unchallenged. 
you step in and destroy the power of sin and death. Thank you for the good news of your salvation. This morning, out of this text, we hear you ask the question, you ask those blind men, do you believe? And if we're honest, sometimes we want to say yes, but but we feel sort of like that woman, desperate to touch you, but but worried about about, about what's going to happen. So at least I'll touch him, I don't have to talk to Would you show us that you are a king filled with compassion and grace and tenderness and mercy, and you turn and you see us? That you don't mince words about our sin, but that you respond to faith however weak it is. Like another father in the Gospels, we believe, Jesus, would you help our unbelief? This morning, would you help us who are struggling in our faith? Would you help those of us who may not even believe, but are feeling this draw to come to you? Would you open all of our hearts to your gospel, the good news of your kingdom, and would you keep changing us? We pray. Amen. Amen.